Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. I don't know if you're like me, but there have been a few times in my life in which I received timely advice that stuck with me and changed me, or at least changed the direction in which I was headed. Advice is defined as a recommendation regarding a decision or course of conduct. And the thing about advice is this. It's usually helpful when it comes at times when we're seeking an answer or stuck in a problem. This is also why it's so memorable. So today, and for the next episode or two, we're going to focus on the best advice ever received. I've asked some of the most capable leaders I know to share the best advice they've received. I'll share advice that some of the world's best leaders have received, and we'll explore advice from several angles. The hope is that some of what we'll talk about today will resonate with you. It just might be the best advice you receive in a while. And this podcast just might be a good podcast to share with a friend. Use your share button on your podcast app and send the link to a friend with a message. It just might be what they need in their life today. Let's get started. These experiences of the best advice that people have had in their life come in no particular order, but I hope they help you as much as they have helped me. Alicia Aguello Cook was born on January 25th, 1981. She's the only child of Teresa Aguello, who was a paralegal and part-time actress. Her father was never in her life growing up. She grew up in a rough part of New York and struggled with self-esteem issues from time to time. She felt unsafe often as a child and relied on her mother's strength as an anchor in very difficult times. As a young girl, she loved music and found her confidence and joy in singing. Some of the best times of her life were Sunday mornings when her mother played jazz records of Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald, and this became extremely influential in kindling her interest in and emotional connection to music. By the age of seven, she fell in love with playing the piano. She would escape to the piano for hours a day, eventually becoming trained in classical music. When she was 10, a neighbor who was moving gave her mother an old upright piano. On that piano, she would perfect her craft. She wrote her first song about her departed grandfather on her piano at age 12. As she started to play in various places in New York, her talent got noticed. Producers and record companies were interested, but she graduated from high school early and took a scholarship to Columbia University. And after graduating and signing with Columbia Records, she realized the vision Columbia Records had for her differed from what she wanted. It took years, but she finally figured out what type of artist she wanted to be. And Alicia, Alicia Keys, as she is known to you and me, passed on some advice that she received along the way as written in a book by Katie Couric. Alicia says, throughout my life, I've been blessed to receive a lot of great advice just when I needed it most. The latest piece of advice that I'm living by is this. When making a very important decision, I ask myself, would you still do it if you never see a dime from it? Alicia says that throughout her life, she has had business people and others approach her with things that seem like really good opportunities. And the benchmark she uses to decide 
is would she do it if she never made a dime from it? You know, I think she's right when she says, when you make a decision because you really love what you're doing, because you're really passionate about it, believe in it, and because you do it no matter what the outcome, that's when you become most successful. Passion makes it easier to eliminate the confusion, the clutter, and more important, the garbage in life. You know, I've also found this to be true, that when you feel deeply about something, that feeling will carry you past the struggles that always seem to come along. You know, some of you listening to this podcast are building a business of your own. You and your team will reach a different level when you arrive at the point in which you do it for reasons other than money. Ironically, that is also when the money seems to come. It's like the story of chasing a butterfly. The more you chase it, the more it eludes you. The minute you turn from it and put your attention on what's important, the butterfly will find you and land softly on your shoulder. Next, some advice I received as a young man. Growing up, my family was always short on money. My parents had eight children. Circumstances caused my parents to be in debt and at times to really struggle to make ends meet. And I did not have financial support from my parents, nor did I have older brothers or sisters to chart a course for me as I anticipated graduating from high school. I didn't know what to do, what college to attend, what major to choose, what to study, or even if I could do any of those things. I struggled, made mistakes, and learned to figure things out. I changed my major several times. I had a disastrous freshman year in college. After a time serving overseas, I started to do better in school and started to find my footing. As I was trying to get my class schedule figured out one semester, I received this advice. Don't take classes, take professors. And from that time forward, I focused on who I was giving my time to at college. Early on, one of the professors I chose took a personal interest in me. She spoke faith into me. She changed my life in many ways. Other professors I took were examples that I wanted to emulate. I looked at what they had done, and their path became my path, and they helped me chart a course for my future life. This advice, don't take classes, take professors, applies in almost any area of life. Surround yourself, attach yourself to people who you want to be like. Because in the end, except for God, most of the way we change or even know how to change comes from seeing others who have walked the path ahead of us. Next, there's been advice that has stuck with me over the years, and it is this. Sometimes when you don't know the right way to go and you have to make a decision, you are better off making a decision than waiting and hoping the right decision will come along because it is in the action of a thing that you learn the rightness of a thing. Here's how Paul Smith put it. In 1995, Mike was a tank platoon leader in the U.S. Army. His platoon was preparing to conduct war games, complete with real tanks and a real field, but with simulated weapons. It was basically a game of laser tag with tanks. Now, the tanks were equipped with laser sensors on the side, as well as sirens and an emergency vehicle whoopee light on top, that identified a tank that had been shot. The exercise required them to charge 10 miles to the center of a five-mile-wide battlefield to engage and destroy the opposing force. As fate would have it, Mike was commanding the lead tank of the lead platoon 
of the lead company of the lead battalion in the brigade combat team. So he would literally be the first tank among the 400 vehicles going into battle in a wedge formation on his side of the field. During the planning phase, Mike and his commanding officer assessed the map of the field. There were several hills, and they decided on one particular pass between the hills that would be the smartest and fastest. When the exercise started, Mike's tank sped towards the enemy as planned. But a battlefield rarely looks like it does on a map, especially when you're looking at it through a tiny opening in the hatch while moving 40 miles an hour and being shot at. When they approached the hills, Mike wasn't sure which way to go. So he had a decision to make. Option one, he could stop the tank, pull out his map, and figure out the right way to go. But the tanks were in a tight formation, and all of them would have to stop along with him. That would leave them all sitting in the open, subject to enemy fire. Option two, he could make an educated guess, keep moving forward, and take his chances. Mike chose option two. He yelled out, driver, go left, take the left pass. Less than a minute after his tank turned left, his whoopee light and siren told Mike that he'd gone the wrong direction, that he was shot. His tank and crew were now dead. A few seconds later, the light on his wingman's tank started to flash, followed by a light on the third tank. But the fourth tank and the other 396 vehicles in the battalion saw what happened and realized it was the wrong decision. All of them headed right, flooded through the correct pass, and defeated the opposing battalion on the other side. Here's the point. If you've decided to make a change, don't wait for perfect clarity. The benefit of action is that you will be all in and the power of all in often outweighs the perfect path. Marissa Mayer worked as one of the lead executives at Google, and she tells the story of her decision to join Google as one of the first employees, something that would go on to change her life. When she graduated from Stanford with a master's in computer science, she had 14 job offers. She didn't know what to do. She made a big chart with all the pros and cons and advantages and disadvantages. She engaged a friend to help her make the decision. And after looking at all the options, he said to her, you know, Marissa, you're putting so much pressure on yourself to make the right choice. You're approaching this as if there's one right answer. I have to be honest. That's not what I see. I see a bunch of good options, and I'm certain whatever option you pick, you will make great. She said, I went to bed and slept on it. When I woke up in the morning, I just knew I had to work for this 12-person startup with a goofy name, Google. I wanted to join Google because I felt the smartest people were working there, because in many ways, I felt utterly unprepared for it and for a whole host of other reasons. Now, I believe in her advice. When you're facing a number of good options, have faith that you and your talent can make the one You are most passionate about the right choice. Next advice. As Steve Maraboli said, every time I thought I was being rejected from something good, I was actually being redirected to something better. I tell this to my kids all the time. Some of my, and I expect your, biggest disappointments in life were a setup for something better that would come from what I learned from the disappointment or I did as a result. Disappointments have a way to turn us around, make us wake up, and if we don't give up, put our feet on the right path. You know, the former New Orleans quarterback, Drew Brees, 
said that we all have times in our life in which we ask, why me? Why now? And say, this is the worst thing that has ever happened to me. We've all had those moments. And however trivial they seem now, when we look back on them, at the time, they were devastating. Breeze says, I can remember one of these moments as if it was yesterday. It changed the course of my career and life. At the time, I thought it was the worst thing that could have happened to me, and I asked myself all of those why questions. It was December 31st, 2005. I was the quarterback for the San Diego Chargers, playing in the last game of the season and approaching an offseason where I didn't have a contract moving forward. Midway through the second quarter, that all changed in the blink of an eye. I dropped back to pass, only to be blindsided and to watch as the ball fumbled out of my hands onto the ground. I jumped in the pile along with a few defenders to try to recover the ball, only to emerge seconds later with a dislocated throwing shoulder. This is the worst injury a QB can have. Some doctors even gave me a 25% chance of ever playing again after seeing the injury up close. So with my future in San Diego gone and my football career in serious jeopardy, I was faced with a choice. I could sit and feel sorry for myself, or I could use this adversity as an opportunity, an opportunity to bring my shoulder back, not only as good as it was, but maybe better. This injury had happened to me for a reason, I thought. And although I may not see it now, I will be better for it. I just need to trust and have faith and believe that if I do things the right way, good things will happen. What is meant to happen for me will happen for me. Two months later, in the midst of my rehabilitation, I received a call from the New Orleans Saints asking if I would consider being their quarterback. I felt a calling to New Orleans that transcended the game of football. At the time, I thought my shoulder injury was the worst thing that could have happened to me. But now, I look back and say it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Remember, every time I thought I was being rejected from something good, I was actually being redirected to something better. Next, I have a good friend named Alan Pariser. Here's what advice helped him in his life. At one point in time, he was neck deep in trying to build a very successful business. He had members of his team asking for his time here and there. He was working 12-hour days, just trying to keep up with all the demands being placed on him. One day, a friend gave him a way to prioritize things when you have too many good things to choose from. That advice was, always choose best over better. When you have competing priorities and you choose the best, you can more easily let go of the good or the better. It's as Stephen Covey famously said, it's so easy to say no when there's a bigger yes burning elsewhere. Alan says, every time I get overwhelmed and I plan my day, I always come back to that advice to choose best over better. And it helps me find a way to get things done. Next, John Pike shares this advice, which I've always remembered, and it sticks in my mind when I'm stressed or leading people poorly. You can teach most people most things except enthusiasm. So I always look for enthusiastic people. Enthusiastic people are, by their nature, positive and full of ideas. There is a great phrase, you are either a radiator or a drain, and drains tend to suck the life out of a team. Sometimes when you and I get to leading our families or teams, 
we get to thinking our way is the way, and we start to bully instead of guiding. I tend to do this. And it's a great reminder to me when I remember this advice that we can be a radiator or a drain. It's up to us. Being a radiator is contagious. You know, one morning in August, a few years ago, at the drive through window of a Starbucks in St. Petersburg, Florida, a customer paid for her order and then picked up the tab for the stranger in the car behind her in line. Then that next customer paid for the bill for the following customer in line, and so on for the next 330 customers in a three-hour sequence of spontaneous generosity. So as you lead, remember, Leadership is one of the most noble professions if practiced well. No other role except for parenting, which really is leadership, can teach you more about you than leadership. But so many of us fail in that role because we think leadership is about us. And the truth is, it's nothing about us. It's everything about those we lead. It's about our radiating our mission, purpose, and the ways others can grow. Then, When we do this, we're really leading. Next advice. For decades, I nursed and dealt with chronic back pain resulting from an accident I had as a young man. I had recurring extreme sciatic pain that would return over and over again. Finally, I made the decision to have back surgery, and after surgery, I wanted the pain to be gone. But it wasn't. My doctor said it would take up to a year, and this was extremely frustrating. I loved to run. I wanted to be back running again, and I couldn't do that either. Then one day, I was reading in Scripture in the book of John. There, there's a story of an infirm man who had been handicapped for 38 years. As I read, I put myself in the place of this infirm man. I, too, was infirm. I was dealing with injuries and pain. And I felt like this was a story about me because I'd suffered from this pain for about the same amount of time. Well, the man sits by the pool of Bethesda waiting for healing, hoping for a miracle like me. But he just sits. And when he is asked why he just sits there, he makes excuses. And it's clear he's just waiting, not doing anything but lying in his bed of excuses. In fact, he's moved his bed right there at the pool. His excuses have become so prevailing in his mindset that it's now occupied his place of living. As I read, I asked myself, wow, have I done that? Am I lying here in my circumstances and letting excuses prevail? Then, when Jesus talks to the man, he says to him, If you will be made whole, then rise, take up your bed, and walk. It was as if this scripture was speaking to me in my day, saying, If you want to be whole, meaning if you want to feel better, if you want wholeness to return to your life and become who you should, then rise. Take up your excuses and walk. So that day, I decided while I was waiting for my surgery to heal, while I couldn't run, I couldn't be as active as I wanted, and while I couldn't do everything I wanted to, while I still had pain, I could walk. I could do something. So I started to walk. Every day, I'd lace up my shoes, put in my earbuds, turn on a podcast, and walk. And this became a bit of a metaphor for me. When I get into situations in which I don't have full control, that will take some time, I remember this advice from the scripture. Rise, take up your bed of excuses, and do something. Walk. 
I believe there are spaces in time in which God gives you a space to see what you will do with it. Will you just wait, giving into your excuses, or will you do something? You know, George Lopez is a successful Mexican-American comedian. In August of 2005, Time Magazine recognized George as one of the 25 most influential Hispanics in America. He talks of the best advice he ever received. He said, anyone familiar with my stand-up routine or the show I had on ABC for years probably knows that I had a miserable childhood. My migrant worker father took off when I was two months old. My mixed-up mother abandoned me when I was 10. I was raised by my biological grandmother and her second husband in a poor section of Los Angeles. Going to college never crossed my mind. To the parents of the kids I grew up around, I was the example used as what you didn't want to be. They would say, you want to end up like George Lopez? My friends ran faster and were better athletes. They had parents. Everything frightened me. The dark, other people, anything new. But I had two things nobody realized. One was determination. The other was a wicked sense of humor. From as far back as I can remember, something funny would always pop into my head. It was how I dealt with not having as much as everyone else. And it's been the one constant companion on my journey. But whenever something got tough for me, I would typically quit. It wasn't healthy to be always quitting. I was only hurting myself. When golf got tough, I quit. When accordion got tough, I quit. When school got tough, I took easier classes. I got a few gigs in small comedy clubs in Westwood after I graduated from high school. I didn't do well. My first stand-up was on June 4th, 1979. I was scared to death. My second stand-up didn't go well either. But the third time was the charm. The audience was laughing, actually laughing. And it gave me a feeling I never experienced before, an infusion of excitement. I had some successes, but was often left feeling humiliated. In 1982, I quit. Yes, I quit again. I had some menial go-nowhere jobs after that. But the moment that turned my life around came at 6.15 in the morning of April 23, 1984, my 23rd birthday. I was sleeping on a friend's couch in a duplex. I realized for the first time that I was going nowhere and that I was not prepared for anything. It was on that day that I realized I had quit at everything, and I made a vow never to give up on stand-up again. I realized if I didn't take the initiative and rewire myself, I would end up being like so many other people I knew who never committed themselves to anything and just took any job they could get and stayed there forever. For the first time, I was determined to trust myself and accept the good as well as the bad as it came. And in the back of my mind, I had always felt that I could be somebody. The movie Rocky came out when I was in high school, and I said to myself, that's me. I had to deal with my fear, my nerves, my shyness, but I was determined to make it as a stand-up comedian. The best advice I ever got came in the early 1990s during a comedy festival in San Antonio. That advice was, be bold. The message I want to convey is, be bold. Don't be afraid. Trust your instincts. If you quit, you'll never find out what could have happened. So be yourself and remember, fortune favors the bold. Well, I agree with George. 
as Shakespeare wrote in Henry V, all things are ready if our mind be so. So bring your boldest self to your biggest challenges and watch what happens. As the writer said, be bold and mighty power will come to your aid. Next, Maya Angelou, the famous poet, educator, historian, and best-selling author of Make Your Own Path, says that her paternal grandmother, Mrs. Annie Henderson, gave her advice that she has used for 65 years. She said, if the world puts you on a road that you don't like, if you look ahead and you don't want that destination which is being offered and look behind and you don't want to return to the place of departure, step off the road. Build yourself a brand new path. This is, in fact, incredible advice. Sometimes we get going along in life, taking the roads that are presented to us rather than considering that there are paths open to us, but they require we forge a path that hasn't been taken before. And often when faced with several competing options, we always have another option to choose, the road not taken. As Robert Frost wrote, two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. The next advice comes from world champion figure skater Michelle Kwan. Her advice, train, grow, and improve in how to fall and get back up. She said, I started figure skating at the age of five, and the first thing my coach taught me was how to fall. I remember gazing up at the coach with a puzzled expression, thinking, shouldn't I be learning how to skate? Why is she teaching me how to fall? Well, looking back, I realized that my coach was very smart. She knew that I was bound to fall many times throughout my career and that I'd need to learn how to handle it. And boy, she was right. Even at 25 as a world champion, I still fell a lot. In 1997, I was the reigning national and world champion. I remember feeling the weight of the world on my shoulders. Instead of my usual go-for-it attitude, I was skating in every competition as if I was afraid to lose. And when you skate like you're afraid to fall or lose, you usually fall. Well, that year, during the U.S. Nationals in Nashville, Tennessee, my worst fears were realized. Although my choreography, music, costume, and even makeup seemed perfect, I was far from perfect that evening when I skated the long program. To this day, I still wince thinking of how many jumps I missed and falls I took. It was truly the worst performance of my career. It would have been very easy for me to give up that night right in the middle of the program, but I was determined to get through it. And every time I fell, I just picked myself back up and kept going. Each fall, each miss made me even more determined to finish the program. And I did. It wasn't pretty, but I got through it. And that competition taught me to never give up. It's a lesson I took with me for the rest of my skating career and beyond. Pick yourself up and keep going. As a competitive skater, you win some and you lose some. And in the end, your finest moments in life aren't necessarily those in which you finish first, but instead the times when you know that you simply gave it your best, when you did it heart and soul and held nothing back. My next advice comes from author Stephen Covey, who also taught my organizational behavior class in MBA school. He told us, it doesn't matter how fast you climb the ladder if the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. You and I can work and fight and give effort to climb and win in life. 
But if what we're pursuing is not what will bring us joy or what is really worthwhile, it really doesn't matter what we've done along the way. That is why it's really important to decide what you're working for. Now, you may be building a business or a family or a career. And in the process, don't skip the foundation building. Is what you're building in the long term going to bring the freedom, the happiness, and the satisfaction that you're seeking? Will you find in the end that you're a better person for having done what you're doing? If so, you have your ladder against the right wall. Last advice comes from the executive chairman of Google. And here's what he says. Find a way to say yes to things. Say yes to invitations to a new country. Say yes to meet new friends. Say yes to learn something new. Yes is how you get your first job and your next job and your spouse and even your kids. Even if it's a bit edgy, a bit out of your comfort zone, saying yes means that you'll do something new, meet someone new, and make a difference. Yes lets you stand out in a crowd, be the optimist, see the glass full, and be the one everyone comes to. Yes is what keeps us all young. So today, say yes to something you might not otherwise say yes to. Step out, try, be enthusiastic, give of yourself, and watch what happens. That is great advice. Well, I hope this podcast of the best advice people have received will help you in your life today. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.